Thank you so much for joining us here at Word Baptist Church. I'm Jamar Andrews. I'm the lead pastor, and I get the great privilege of shepherding here. I'm excited that you're joining us today for this sermon. You're about to receive text-driven preaching. My prayer is that God speaks to you through this time as you listen to this message. So enjoy, and God bless. invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 15 is uh, where we will spend our time together uh, this morning as we continue our series uh, entitled Unveiled, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, We've been working our way on a steady pace through uh, the book of Revelation. And so today we are entering into uh, a new chapter. Uh, As a matter of fact, it's the shortest chapter in the book, chapter 15. Uh, eight verses. Uh, That's no indication of the length of the message, though. It's just to give you a head start. (laughs) So you know where we're going to be headed. Uh, We've been working our way through this book, and uh, we've we've been introduced to some very uh, important things uh, as we think about how our Lord is going to bring uh, human history uh, to its appropriate conclusion. Uh, We have been able to see uh, marvelous wonders and signs in the heavens. Uh, We've been able to see God's grace and his justice and how he is working uh, in the midst of things now, uh, how he will work uh, in the future. And so as we continue our series, uh, the title of today's message is a nice, warm, loving, and encouraging one, uh, Preparation for Judgment. Preparation for Judgment. You see, today's passage sets up for us and it establishes for us uh, the next series of judgments that uh, we will be uh, seeing. Now, whenever we think about these things, there are some weighty things that we must deal with today. But as has been God's pattern in this book, even even in the weighty things, he has also given us uh, some very important truths about Uh, his grace, goodness, and mercy, and what he desires to do in a life that's willing to surrender to him. You see, I like to call this particular section, this is God's last word before the judgment. Now, just by show of hands out there, uh, any of you say, you know what, I'm good at arguing. Anybody say, you know, I'm a good arguer. Somebody get paid to argue. We got lawyers and he get paid to argue. Something like, I ain't an argument I ever lost, right? You know, I think about this in my own life. I love to argue, and uh, I, I have not lost an argument yet because I always get the last word. Even if whoever I'm arguing with, they don't know it. When I hang up the phone, I get the last word. They walk off, I get the last word. <laughs> and I was thinking about the, the concept, the dynamic of this, that God has been laying out for us Uh, in very vivid language through symbols and all these things, his will and his plan. But now he is bringing us into this understanding that ultimately he's going to get the last word. You know, in our culture, we see certain things happening, whether it's injustices, whether it's hardships, difficulties, things that we wonder that we question, why does it have to be this way? Or why didn't it happen at this particular point in time? Or, you know, how is this all going to come together? But can I just tell you what we find in the overarching theme through the book of Revelation and specifically in this passage is that God gets the last word. And we have to be willing to look to him and to trust this. 
You know, in our culture, humanity, we struggle with this a lot of times. We struggle with the idea that God is going to bring about judgment. We struggle with the fact that, you know, there's going to come a time in history where judgment is going to fall in ways like it has never fallen on humanity. And it's not going to be the devil. It's not going to be the Antichrist. It's actually going to be God that is going to be executing wrath and judgment on a fallen world. And we and we struggle with that. Just the other day, I was picking up my daughter from school and I was standing in the line waiting for her to come out and I could, I overheard a conversation. These ears are big. They pick up a lot of things. And so I was, I overheard not intentionally, but I overheard a conversation between two young people. They're probably junior high students. And the young man said to a young lady, you know, this is all God's fault. You know, you look at the world and you see all the different things that are happening and, you know, the murders and the deaths and all, all these kind of things. And it's all God's fault. And my antennas perked up. And I turned around and I looked at the young man and the young lady who he was talking to began to address him. And she said, no, it's, it's not, you know, it's not God's fault. You know, when he created this world, he created it perfect and he created Adam and Eve sinless, perfect. They, they, they were innocent, you know, like children. This is her. She's explaining this to this young man. She was like, you know, innocent. Like, you know, they were, they were like children and they did not know sin. And they, they made the decision to sin. And so it's their fault. And inside of me, I said, hallelujah. <laughs> I wanted to say, girl, I hear you over here. But I didn't say no. I just, I just, I said, touche. I just turned right back around and mind my own business. But, you know, as I think back to that young man's statement, though, I believe that that is the sentiment, though, the, the mindset of the majority of the people that we know that this thing is God's fault. That this thing is God's fault, that the world around us, you look at the struggles, you look at the hardships, this, this thing is God's fault. But can I just tell you, like my sister told him, no, it's not that God made us. He made Adam and Eve perfect and they, they're the ones that that sinned. But that's not the end of the story, though. And I wish, you know, me and sister going to have an opportunity. I'm going to tell her how to turn that thing even over. As a matter of fact, God went to the extent that not only did he know that creation was corrupt and sinful, but he determined and decided that he himself, he would come and enter himself into our mess. It was an intentional decision that he made. And he entered himself into our mess and he gave the ultimate sacrifice and paid the ultimate price. He laid down his life and he brought it back up again so that we might have life. And so today, as we look at this passage, we're going to see uh, two main movements. Number one, that the Lord, he directs history to his final judgment, that he's in control. Uh, theologians like to call this God's sovereignty, but what that means is that he's in control, has been in control, is in control, and will always be in control. The second thing is that the Lord, his, his glory and power will be evident. Nobody will have to question and wonder, is this God? It's going to be very clear uh, who is at work here. As we go down through these two movements, I find that we can be challenged and encouraged to understand that I believe that the greatest issue in our day uh, is not necessarily political problems, not necessarily environmental problems, not necessarily economic problems, although those create strain. But I believe that the greatest problem is that human beings don't fear God. They don't take him seriously. And we're going to see God's response to a world that has not taken him seriously. So I believe that that's the greatest problem. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And we live in a world where people are not taking God seriously. And so we see the effects of it. I hope you've had an opportunity to find Revelation chapter 15. I'm going to read our first movement, verses 1 through 4. It says this. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and marvelous. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, <clears throat> because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God and the song of the lamb saying great and marvelous are your works. O Lord God, the almighty righteous and true are your ways. King of the nations who will not fear. O Lord and glorify your name 
for you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been re revealed. First thing we're going to see is that the Lord, he directs, he directs all things. He is causing all things to come to the point where he desires them to be in the final judgment. In chapter 15, verse 1, it says this, uh, another sign. Uh, this is the same structure that we saw in chapter 12, where there was this sign of a woman and the dragon. And this is drawing us into this understanding that there's getting ready to be great tribulation. This sign, if you remember, signs in this particular situation, they act the same way as signs in our day. They point us to a deeper reality. Whenever you are driving and you see the sign Jonesboro 15 miles, the sign is not Jonesboro. It's just pointing you to a deeper reality of the direction that you're going and what you're getting ready to encounter. And so here, the same way, this great sign or marvelous sign as we, we see here is pointing us to a reality, a reality that tribulation is getting ready to come. Wrath is getting ready to come. It's a sign in the heavens and it's getting ready to be laid out on those who have rejected God's payment in himself, Jesus Christ, as he has laid down his life. Now we're brought into this understanding that there are seven bowls that are going to be produced. And so in our, in our text, it says there are seven plagues and it says, these are the last ones because in them, the wrath of God is finished. And so as we look at this, we must recognize that God's judgment is going to be complete. He's, he is going to get the last word. You see, what has happened, what has been developed for us is that throughout human history, God in his grace, he has responded to human beings in a very benevolent and in a way of mercy. But that is going to expire. There's going to come a time where the subscription is going to expire and then the payment is going to be due. And so I want you to think about it this way, you know, God's grace and mercy right now, we live in this age and what happens when the subscription expires, right? Then you have to come out and have to pay for some things. And we're going to see very clearly that this is the, the, the case. These seven plagues on lost human beings. You see, I just want to illustrate it this way that God has been patient for a long time. Thousands of years. He has been patient. If you're taking notes, I just want you to jot down Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 30 and 31 because his patience has extended to you. It's extended to me. It's extended to all this whole world. And I just want you to get a, a feel, a flavor for how this patience works and how it lays out. It says this, therefore, having y'all see the word, what's the word there? Overlooked the times of ignorance. Y'all catch that? So God, in his, in his grace, the way in which he had operated, he, he overlooked the times of ignorance, the times in my life where I was acting ignorant or ignorant, you know, uh, in your life, the same way, in humanity, the same way. And it says this, but catch it now, God is now declaring to men, y'all ready for it, that how many people? All people, everywhere, what should they do? Repent. See, this is a very important understanding that, that in his benevolence, in his grace, in his patience, in his mercy, it has been long suffering. That's one of the attributes of God is that he is very patient. He doesn't just lash out and get upset, even though he does bring wrath, but, he, but it's been patient. And, but, now, but now he's declaring to men that all people everywhere, they should repent. Bible word, which means a change of mind that ultimately leads to a change of direction, that we should think differently about God and ourselves in such a way that it causes us to turn away from us living our own lives, doing things our own way to him to have a living hope. The reason why, verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, this is a reality that we must see that God is, is going to bring judgment and he has been patient and benevolent and gracious, but there's going to come a time where the subscription of his grace and mercy run out and it's going to be time to pay. Now, as we look to this, we must see though that God in his work, how, how this is going to play out. So even in the midst of this statement of his wrath, he always drops in here a great expression of his grace and goodness. And we see this in 
Verse two, it says this, and I saw something like a sea of glass. Y'all catch that? Mixed with fire. Well, this is not the first time we've been introduced to this sea of glass. We saw it in chapter four, uh, specifically verse six. In that area, we saw this sea of glass. And if you remember in that message, when I preached that, I talked about how this is an expression of God's holiness. It's an expression of his word, ultimately uh, reflecting. And we see that that God in this is his word, but now it's a little bit different this time because it's mixed with fire. In verse two, it says it's mixed with fire. And so ultimately we see the sustaining work of his word, but now we see that now judgment is introduced to it. So the word hasn't changed. His word has not changed. His mind has not changed, but ultimately the promise of his judgment is being fulfilled. Now, out of this, though, I want you to catch it. He says, we see this sea of glass It's mixed with fire, but catch it now. And those who have been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name. What are they doing? Standing on the sea of glass and they're holding harps, the harps of God. Now, this is a beautiful expression because these are the, the tribulation saints. These are those who have come through this difficulty and they are standing now. Now, I, I happen to believe some some see it as like a crystal that you would see that's hard that you stand on. But I happen to see this as a, a picture of, of water. You see the priests in the in the earthly temple. There was a basin uh, liver where they would wash before they would go in to do the things that they had to do. And so so I believe this is a picture of that. And so we see these saints standing. And now I think this picture is a picture of them being able to stand on water. So I'm just going to call them the water walkers just for a minute and we're going to get there here in a second but in this I believe he's teaching us something very important about the triumph of the saints that that they had experienced and gone through some of the most difficult times in all of human history but they are still victorious they lost their life they died because they were not willing to submit to the worship of the false religious system the antichrist and the beast they were not willing to do it and so they died on earth but in heaven they were seen as victorious and so I, I think this is a great picture for us to see that even though in this world we might be viewed as losers those who are not you know the in crowd or those who are not the, the the greatest known or have the most impact or influence the way heaven sees I believe these saints in 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 the tribulation and the saints now we are seen as victorious already and the reason is, is that we don't fight for victory, fight from victory. Jesus Christ has already obtained it. And so thus we live and move and flow from what he has already done. And so when we think about these dynamics, I believe that these saints, they are standing. Now, imagine you're reading this book and you're in a time of persecution and difficulty and hardship. And you see the people that went through hardship and they're standing in heaven right in the presence of God. And God is showing that he is going to be faithful. That we can trust him. You know. I believe that this reminds us that these saints, they did not bow down to the satanic system and neither do we. We don't have to bow down to it. If you're taking notes, I just want you to jot down a passage for me. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, because, you know, I've submitted to us over all these weeks that whenever you know about the end times, when you know about how things will end up, knowing the future should change how you live in the present. And so I believe that when you understand that God is able to hold you, hold you in tribulation, hold you in difficulty and be able to see how he's going to sustain these saints in the midst of Satan, having full reign, full movement, full work. And he's going to have them standing before him. We should understand that just like they can stand up to the satanic system, so can we. And the way in which we do that, I believe we find it in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. It says this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you ready for it? To present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, a living, and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Here we go. And do not be conformed to this world, meaning this world, this system, it's fallen. The enemy right now, as we speak, he has a way about him, a way in which he wants you to think, way in which he wants you to act, the way in which he wants you to view God. But we don't allow his his system. We don't allow his container to press us into a specific mold. It says, but we have to be transformed by the renewing of, of your mind. Meaning we have to have a transforming work in salvation. He gives us a new, and, and he, as a matter of fact, the Bible says we have the mind of Christ and we allow that to continue to transform the lies and the issues and the mess that we hear. You see, the way I look at it is all week you've been hearing a whole lot of mess from this world. 
about what you should be doing, how you should be thinking, how you should be living. And it's wicked, sinful evilness. Right. And so when you come in here, this is an opportunity to have your mind trans transformed and renewed. The, the water of the word comes out now and it begins to wash over you and it allows you to be able to determine what was a lie and what was the truth and what you hold on to and what you let go of. And we come in here in this moment and we allow God to transform us. Is it transformed by the, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, I believe these individuals are a great example for us that we don't have to succumb to the influence of our adversary. Now, the Bible says about them that they're standing and they have an instrument. You see, it says they have harps of God, instrument of praise. We've already seen this has to do with joy, that they are standing here and they are excited about it. And they have these harps, in instruments of praise or, or of joy. And how do you know that? Well, we know that because verses three and four tell us that they were singing. You hear what I'm trying to tell you? It says that they were singing. Verse three says, and they sang the song of Moses. Now, there are several different ways you can view this. It's going to get just a little bit technical, and then we're just going to press and get high here for a minute and have a good time. But when you see this, there are several different ways to, to, to think about this. When it says they have the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, the song of Moses, you can either view this like I view it, like this is Exodus 15, or you can view this like this is Deuteronomy 30. Or you can view this as this is the song that the Israelites sang when they came out of captivity from Babylon. Either one is fine with me because they all picture the fact that God is the one who brings about deliverance. That, that's what the goal here, what they see is that God, they are celebrating the fact that God has been faithful to what he said he would do. And he is the one who is their deliverer. Now, if you hadn't had your quiet time in Exodus 15, let me just humor you for just a minute. Exodus 15 comes right after, no shock to you, guess what? Exodus 14. Y'all thought, man, I didn't know that. Yes, you know now. And in Exodus 14, what you find is, is that the children of Israel, they have come through the Red Sea. Water heaped up on both sides. They came through on dry ground. Pharaoh thought he was bad. He was going to chase after them. He got in there. He said, uh-oh, and the water came down, and they all drowned. That, that's what just happened before we get to Exodus 15. That's what happened. And so you know how it is whenever you have a great victory, right? You, you don't just say, man, that was a good win, right? That's not what the Israelites did. They said, oh, my goodness, we won. And they had a song that they sang. They were so excited about the fact that they came through. And y'all know Sister Miriam, that's Moses' sister. She got that tambourine out, got the rolling out there on that side of that riverbank. She was, had that tambourine rolling. The men were singing first. That's how the text of progression. The men were singing first. Then Mary said, oh, I got to get in this. And then it says that her and the sisters got in with that tambourine. They got the rolling. And they got to singing about all that God was doing and who he was and how he was working and all those things. And can I just tell you, that fires me up because many times what we do, and I'm not saying don't worship after you come through the river, okay, or coming through the sea or coming out of the difficulty, but it'd be nice if we get a little bit of worship on the other side first. That makes sense? But we see here that, that this is a picture. It's drawing us into that time. As a matter of fact, if you just want to do a little history, it's the first recorded song in the Bible. I didn't say they were the first one to sing, but Exodus 15 is the first recorded song for us in the Bible. Now, there are a whole lot of other places where songs are recorded, but that's the very first one. And the very first one talks some, it says some very important things about God. But if you notice these individuals, the text tells us they, they sang the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Did y'all catch that? And so what's happening here is a combination of Old and New Testament. We have law and grace being brought together. And so when we think about this, this is a, a beautiful expression of God's work, how he's going to keep his law, how he's going to make sure that he is just, but also how he is going to be justifier, how he is going to allow a, a group of people who don't deserve it to be set free and not be held captive to sin. So that, that's the beautiful thing about this song, that it has the law in it, but also it has God's grace in it, both covenants, old and new. And so when we see this, our mind should be thinking about the fact that these individuals, the way that they overcame, it says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. See, that's the way in the Old Testament, the Israelites, you know how they overcame in Egypt? 
by the blood of the lamb. That's exactly the same way the blood of the lamb set them free. I like to call it a spiritual exodus, right? That's what Jesus Christ does for us. He's not telling us to get blood and go outside and do a little renovation on our houses. But what he's saying in our lives is, is that what he wants to do is a spiritual exodus. Y'all just hang with me for a minute so I can preach a little bit, okay? So in this movement here, when we see that they're singing this song, it's a song of deliverance. So in the Old Testament, when we see this, we understand that God's people were in a sinful place, a place of captivity and bondage. And so God, he says, I'm going to get my people out of there. And so he goes down and he has a conversation with Moses and he sends Moses to be able to set his people free through a series of plagues trying to get Pharaoh's attention. Uh, he, Pharaoh wants to be hard hearted. So the last one, he says, all right, let me tell you what to do. Here going to be the play. All right. They get down, they draw some lines in the sand. Look, I'm going to throw it over here. You make sure you're in the spot over there. And this is what we're going to do. Okay. And that play was to put blood, blood of the lamb, post lentil, put it down. Right. And so then the angel, when it came in, the death angel, if it saw the blood over that, it would pass over the house. First, firstborn wouldn't die. Everybody woke up, all the hollering and going on in Egypt, all the death that was happening, woke everybody up. And so then Pharaoh said, you know what? Y'all can get on out of here. You, 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 you can go. And he let them go. But y'all know he still was trying to come after them. Y'all know that even though after they came through the waters, that they went to the wilderness, had wilderness wanderings before they got to go to the promised land. So I believe the reason why they're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb is because of the spiritual exodus. Let me just put it to you this way. That whenever you were born, when, when we were born, we were born in sin, in Egypt. Let me just tell you. We're not born in God's promised land, not in heaven. And what the lamb had to do, he had to be willing to be slain. And so whenever his blood is appropriated to your life, the second death, the second death, it passes over you. And you know what happens after you surrender your life. That's how we're cleansed and saved anyways, by the blood of the lamb. So then the next step, whenever you give your life to Christ is baptism. You get in the waters, right? And you go, you don't stay in the water. You come through the water, right? So then after you come through the water, then you have what's called the wilderness wanderings. That's the process of sanctification in which God is making you more like him. And you go through trials and difficulties, circumstances, situations where you look to him and see that he can sustain you, work in you and be able to deliver you and hold you strong in the midst of it. And then after you go through those things, then this beautiful thing happens called death. It frees us to be able to be with him in the promised land forever that we call heaven. And that's the song. That's the song that they're singing. They had some key things to say about God. But before we look at those things, can I just say, I just want to read you another passage out of Romans that so tightly brings together this idea of the Old Testament and the New Testament and the covenant. And that's Romans 3, 23 through 26. This for somebody, get ready now. For all have sinned. Y'all catch that? How many of us sinned? Every one of us in here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everybody you know. Everybody you know. Now catch this now. But the beautiful thing, it says this though, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in who? Christ Jesus. Notice this. It says in Christ Jesus. I love that the Bible is so precise here. It's not in anybody else. That redemption is in Christ Jesus. It's not in yourself, your works. It's not in any other belief system. So you just take any other so-called prophet or prophet you know. It's not in them. Any other religious system or philosophy. It's not in them. It's, it's in Christ Jesus. Ready for it? How, why, why is it only in him? Who God displayed how? Publicly. As a propitiation, the covering, the pavement, the substitution. Notice this, how in his blood, through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance, everybody see that word? Forbearance of God, he did what? The sins previously committed. He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be what? Just, meaning he holding it accountable, making sure he's not letting anybody get off the hook. Nobody's going to be able to get away with it so that he would be just. But also, we got this other side, this graceful side, this gracious side, this mercy side, justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the only way you get to get this wonderful benefit, how do you get it? You have to have faith in Jesus Christ. Very specific. That's the only place you can find it. You see, it fascinates me. It fascinates me that whenever we read this text, we read this, these saints, they had gone through 
such a very horrendous time. I'm going to just call it what I believe it really is. is it, it's, it's a time of, of death and destruction and hatred like we've never seen. But what fascinates me, can I just tell you what fascinates me? Y'all don't seem too disagreeable this morning. Is that you never hear of them complaining about it. Like when I read the text, did y'all hear them say, listen, it says they have the song of complaining and griping about what all they went through. Is that what the text says? That they have the song of moaning and it would have been the greatest blues hit if you ever. That's why I can't fool with blues. Everybody's sad and mad and upset about stuff all the time. That's not what it says. They ain't, they ain't sad about this thing. And let's just get the content of what they have to say because I'm going to tell you what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And if we get your perspective right about God, it's amazing how it will reshape everything. Because I know that in our lives, we go through hardships and we go through things that we don't understand. We, we go through circumstances, situations, stuff we didn't ask for. And many times that begins to shape how we view God. But I believe if we'll get the right view of God and we'll allow him to shape how we view those things that we've gone through, we'll arrive at the right spot. They didn't complain. But guess what they said? Look with me in, our, in the song. It says, great and marvelous are your works. That's where they first started out. And they said, God, you know what? You are marvelous. You are great. They started with his character. They said, this is who you are. You're great. You're marvelous. This is who you are. They, they say, you show off, God. But we, we can look at your works and we see that you, you show off. We have to start there. But then they move in and they say, oh, Lord God, the almighty the almighty, which means the all powerful one, the one who has all the power. So if you believe, if you are willing to submit your mind to the fact that God is all powerful, he has all the power. So can I, let me just ask you a quick question. If God has all the power, who else has the power? Right. He has all the power. Right. Does that mean that, that, that he doesn't delegate certain things? Does that mean that he doesn't allow in his economy for folks to rise up and to fall and for things to happen? That, that, that's true. It does happen. But ultimately, where the buck stops is with him. He has all the power. So they remind themselves, God, you have all the power. You are the almighty. But they didn't stop there, though. They said, not only do you have all the power, but guess what? You are righteous and true. You are righteous and true. Righteous and true are your ways. So now they say you have all the power, God. But not only do you have all the power, but the way in which you relate to us is, is you relate to us in a just and truthful way. Like we, we can trust you. We can trust you even when we don't want to, even when we don't see it. We, we can trust you because you are righteous and true. But not only does, does he say we're righteous and true, but in this idea of the, the truth of God has to do with his ability to not change, meaning that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That circumstances don't change him. That opinion polls don't change him. That, that when we go through certain things, it doesn't change him. Whenever things are true, we, most of the time we think of it as, is it a lie or is it the truth? That's one way to see it. But if I also say it's true, that means that it holds the same line. It holds, it has to do with the direction of things. It has to do with the fact that, listen, we can trust his character always. And that's what he's calling us to do, that he understands. So what that means, and I just want you to hear me, what that means is that whatever comes into your life and my life is father filtered. That doesn't mean that he caused it. That doesn't mean that he's excited about it. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. But what we have to say is that, God, I can look to you to know that whatever is going on, you are all powerful and I can trust you. Even when you're not answering all my questions, even whenever you don't you know, seem to be giving me all the answers that I want to know when I want to know them. I can look to you and I can trust you because you are the almighty. Let me just say this. They also say he's the king. Did you catch it? it says the king of the nations. Now, knows that just yet, but in this day, everybody's going to know it. Not everybody knows he's the king of the nations, but everybody's going to know it in this day. Now, don't, don't miss this, that he's the king of the nations, and that ultimately he is set apart because he is holy. We should not think him to be like us. Now, after we see this, we see this song, we hear some very important things that are going to happen. Did you see verse 4? It says, who will not fear the Lord? O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. For all the nations, how many of them? All of them will come and worship before you. 
for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, can I just tell you, this gets me excited. And let me just tell you briefly, because we got to roll. But the reason why I get excited about this is because what that tells me is, is that we have already won. Like we are on the winning team. Now, granted, we, we, we are not the ones that made the plate. Jesus Christ is the one. He's the one that's the best. You know, last night we had the all-star game going on. And I thought about, you know what? Jesus is the MVP of the all-stars, if, if you had to look at it. That makes sense? And I just think about us as players, you know, we the bench warmers over here, okay? That don't mean we don't have a role. We have a role, but he's the one that's getting all the buckets, okay? And one of my favorite things to do is to watch during the game is to watch the bench. That makes sense? You watch the bench, them, the, the folks on the bench, they having a good time. Yeah, they hollering, they cheering on, and they ain't, made a, they ain't even got in the game to foul nobody. That makes sense? But can I tell you, whenever their team wins, they get, they get the ring. They get to be in the locker room after celebrating. The confetti falls on them as well. They get a chance to lay down, make confetti angels. They get to be in the parade that happens in the city after you make, get the win. And so understand that whenever you give your life to Christ, you are already victorious. And so ultimately what he is calling us to do is live that way and understand that in him, we already have everything we will ever need. And we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in this, in this place where we think our lives are not going to count or matter because he has already accomplished what needs to be accomplished if you'll be willing to lay your life in him and trust him. Second thing that I want us to see is that the Lord's glory and power will be evident. Now, in verses five through eight, we get a chance to see the development. This is a, a very important movement as we're going to see these bowls Pour, be poured out in, in chapter 16. And so we get the stage, the stage is going to be set. It says this, after these things I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened and the seven angels who had the seven plagues that came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright and girded around their chests were uh, golden sashes then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now in this last movement, this astonishes me. And it is, this astonishes me because, number one, we see now we are brought back into the heavenly vision and recognize it says there's a temple. I think you can also render that sanctuary. Uh, it says that, that he looked and he looked in the temple or the, the sanctuary, the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. Notice what, what does it say in verse five that it was what? Open. Y'all catch that? This is very important to remember that this is communicating to us that God is going to keep his promise and that he's going to keep his covenant. And he's going to be working and moving. But now here in a minute, we're going to see that even though it was open here, that nobody's going to be able to enter here in just a minute. But in so doing, we have to recognize that there, this is an important picture. The, the earthly temple was meant to be a, a picture, a shadow of the heavenly one. And so if you're taking notes, I just want you to jot down Hebrews 8 verse 5. I just want to read this to you. It just says, who serves as a copy of the shadow of the heavenly. He's talking about the earthly temple things. It says, things, says, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for C, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. You know, when Moses was up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, he's connecting, communicating with God. He was shown the pattern and that pattern was what was supposed to be replicated on earth. Right. So what's happening at this time in the tribulation is you have the Antichrist, you have the, the false prophet and they are in the earthly temple and they, they are have taken over it and they are blaspheming the one in heaven. And I love this because they might have taken over the earthly temple, but they can't do nothing about the one in heaven. And so we see that this one is open still. It's open and God is still doing business. He's still working and he's still moving. And this heavenly one, it, it shows access and is a reminder that God will keep his promise to his people. It's saying that his people, they have access at this point. They are still open for business. But there's going to be a shift that's going to happen. Now, in this, we see seven angels. These are different angels than the ones we read about in uh, chapter 14. These angels are going to bring about the completion. You remember I shared with you.
seven, number of completion. And they're going to bring about the complete wrath of God. Now, did you notice how they're dressed? These, these angels, GQ now. Did you catch it? They were in linen, fine linen. Because they are serving. This is a divine ministry. And so they have on the priestly garments. These garments will be the same as the priest will wear, where it be the white with the sash in the front. And they have on these priestly garments and they represent holiness. And in so doing, we see that the gold represents the royalty. And so they're the kingdom priests. It's the idea that what has to come together is the idea of royalty and also intercession. And so they're going to be the ones that mediate for God in his wrath. But it's going to be his wrath. But did you catch these living creatures? These living creatures, they come in verse seven. And it says that they gave to the seven angels, seven golden bowls or vials full of the wrath of God. Now, I can't explain all of that. But what I know is, is that it says that it's, it, that it's full, that ultimately it means that the completeness. If you remember in the trumpet judgments and in the seal judgments, these were all partial judgments, a third of this or a third of that. But now these are going to be all full. It's going to take care of everything, wipe everything out. They're going to be full. And it says the living creatures bring this. And I believe the reason why God uses these living creatures, if you remember, we talked about them earlier in the, in the book, that these living creatures, they had the face like a man, they had a face like uh, the bird of the air, the eagle, they had the face like the wild beast and then like the livestock. And so God is getting ready to pour out these on the earth and God had made a covenant already with them. And so it's showing this dynamic that God is in control, but they are willing to understand the covenant that, that the wrath has to fall. And so in so doing, we see these last judgments. Now, I just want to talk to you briefly about how judgment works. Because in the Bible, you, you see, I believe, uh, three different types of judgments. You see what I like to call cause and effect judgments. You know, that's like you, 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 you sin, so therefore there's a certain type of judgment that or, or issue or consequence that comes along with that sin. We see that all throughout our life, cause and effect judgment. That, that's one type. The other type has to do with catastrophic judgment. You see where God will either use a local catastrophe or a global catastrophe like the flood to bring about his judgment. A local catastrophe like Sodom and Gomorrah. Whenever he was judging Sodom and Gomorrah locally to that area. And so you see a local uh, catastrophic judgment. But then I think that the third way that we see him bring about judgment is whenever we see an eternal one, wherever the wrath is brought down and it's sustained and it stays that way. Now, I can make the case for a fourth one, so let's just do that. Y'all don't seem to disagree, but I'm going to hit it real quick, and we're going to make a mad dash to close. But there's also a judgment where God will give you over. And that's a judgment where he has tried to put up resistance, and he has tried to put up resistance, and you keep on wanting to push the wall over. You keep wanting to try to move the mark. And so what he eventually does is he just gives you over to what you desire and what you want, the sinful things that you want in your life. He, ge he gives you over to those things for destruction. And so we see that. We see these all throughout the Bible. But whenever he says about this, these creatures, that the, the, the wrath is given, says he lives forever. And it says the temple is filled with smoke and the glory of God. And notice this from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple. Y'all catch that? Not angel, not saint. Nobody was able to be able to go in. So what was once open and available is now closed up. And I believe that God does this for a very specific reason. And that's because at this moment, there will be no intercessory prayer. There will be no, you know, no saint is going to be able to go in and intercede. That The time for that has passed. And so now the judgment has fallen. You see, at this point, it's too late. And, you know, every Sunday when I preach, I just I ask myself the question. Do we understand how good God is in his grace and how long he has waited so that we might surrender our life to him. And do we understand that there's going to come a time when it's too late? You see, I find that there are two times when it's too late. The first is whenever you actually physically die. It's too late. Whenever the soul and spirit separate from your body, it's too late. It's too late. But in this moment, whenever God's wrath and his judgment comes and that no longer is he going to relate to us in grace and mercy, it's too late. And so I just wanted to share with you from Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. It says this. It says, do not fear those 
who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, and as we see this, there are a lot of things that we fear in this life. There are a lot of things that we, we wrestle with and we struggle with. But can I tell you, I just find that too many of us are not fearing the things that we should. Or let me say it, the one that we should. And understand the depth and the degree of what is going to happen. Now, when I read that, y'all might say, man, that's harsh, preacher. You ain't going to win. You ain't going to influence and win too many friends like this. Can I just tell you the reason why I believe that God is so serious about this? Let me just read it to you. On in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, verses 45 through 51. You see, I believe that the reason why he's so serious about this is because the wrath that Jesus endured, he did it for you. And whenever you decide that you don't want to accept his grace, there only remains one other option, and that's his wrath. You see, in Matthew's gospel, we get a chance to see this moment. It says, now from, the sixth, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, what, what does it say? Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, say it with me, why have you forsaken me? Some of the most powerful words you will ever read is that Jesus Christ and his relationship with the Father was willing to be forsaken so that you could be brought in. And so in this movement, he is experiencing all the wrath, all the punishment, all the payment, all those things. He is experiencing it, experiencing it so that you and I would not have to, so that nobody would have to, so that they would be, be able to experience his grace and goodness and not his wrath. Jesus Christ is willing to do it, to be forsaken. Catch it now. Verse 47, and some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, they began saying, this man, he's calling out for Elijah. Verse 48. Immediately, one, one of them ran, and they, and they took a sponge, and filling it with sour wine, they, they put it on a reed, and they gave it to him. They gave him a drink. Notice this. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. What did he do? Yielded up his spirit. That's some of the most important language. He, he did, nobody took his life. He yielded it up. It means he laid it down. He gave it. The only person to ever decide to Jesus Christ, he yielded up his spirit. Now catch it now though. And behold, the veil of the temple was what? Torn in two. This is important. From what? Top to bottom. Letting you know that no human being did it. It didn't come from the bottom up. It came from the top down, which means it was an act of God from the top down. He was opening things up for us to be able to come into his presence so that way we could have a relationship with him. It says from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So what happens here is Jesus Christ, he is forsaken. He is treated as a sinner so that sinners could be treated as the son. He, he opens up the temple so that we would understand that we can have a relationship with him because one day it will be closed off and nobody will be able to get in there. So the question is for you, have you been willing to accept his invitation? Have you been willing to accept his payment? Have you been willing to accept his work, the work that he has done, how he's laid down his life for you? Are you willing to have a spiritual exodus today in which you allow the blood of Christ to come over your life so that the second death, the death, it will pass over you so that way you can understand that he is the almighty, the righteous, the true, the holy one, the king right now? Because as the Bible says, everybody's going to come to that conclusion anyways. But the question is, will you come to it now so that way you'll be on the winning side. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for this morning, for your word, for the time that we've been able to look to it. And Lord, in this place, there will be decisions made today. Everybody, every single one of us will make a decision. Every single one of us will make a decision about what we're going to do with you, Lord Jesus. And I pray, Lord, if there's any here, they don't know you. They have not surrendered their life to you. They've not submitted to you that, Lord, today would be the day. They would understand that, Lord, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God.
But Lord Jesus, so that you could be just and justifier, you are the propitiation of our sins. You are the replacement. You are the covering. You're the one that calls us to see that, Lord, you laid your life down so that we might be brought to a loving relationship with you. I pray that, Lord, they would call out to you and they would say, Lord Jesus, save me. Save my soul. They would understand that, Lord, that there's only two options. They will either experience your grace and goodness or they will experience your wrath. There's not, there's, there's just two options. And Lord, they would say to you in faith, I surrender to you, Lord. Be my king, my Lord, and guide my life. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here. We have given our life to you. Lord, I pray you would help us to recognize, recognize your glory, your sovereignty, your power, and to live our lives in light of that. Lord, there are a lot of things that happen in our life. But Lord, I believe that we can look to you as the Almighty and as the righteous one, knowing that everything is Father filter. Lord, nothing, nothing has caught you by surprise. Nothing ever will. And so, Lord, as we go through things, as we go through trials and tribulations and hardships and difficulties, Lord, I pray that we would look to you. We would look to you, Lord. And that, Lord, we would understand and we would interpret everything that happens in our life based off of the cross. What you've laid down for us. Lord, I pray that as we go into this time of reflection and prayer, that, Lord, you would work deeply in our lives. That, Lord, you would move us to trust you. Lord, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your goodness. Pray to have your way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I hope God spoke to you during the message today. We want to know about it. You can fill out a connection card at wordbaptist.com slash connection card. We want to help you through any spiritual questions you may have while you're on this journey. You see, we believe that the first step is for a person to give their life to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that the greatest need that humanity has is to be saved. And that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. If you will agree with God that you need him for the forgiveness of your sins and you will turn to him in repentance and believe in him, uh, you will be saved. The Bible says that you do this by one believing that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead and that you believe that his payment is sufficient for you, that you will call out to him as Lord and Savior, he will save you. If you're listening to this service and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come and be our guest during the time of worship. We have multiple services. We would love to meet you personally and have you here for worship. You can check us out at wordbaptist.com for service times. If you've missed any sermons, they're all archived there online, so you can go back and watch them. You can connect with us on social media at Word Baptist. If you would like to invest in the ministry and continue the spread of the gospel, you can give online at wordbaptist.com give. I'm so grateful that you've joined us today, and I hope you've learned something that you can apply to your life, and we hope to see you again next time right here at Word Baptist Church.